Okay, howdy folks. Brian Husky here again talking with you. And today's gonna be something that I haven't really done before in the sense that um, it's not gonna be an essay or a story per se. But it's something that I feel could be valuable to share with people that are um, considering hunting alone and what it's actually like when you have an animal down alone. Um, I think a lot of what I want to do with the Skylines podcast is to empower people to feel that going into the backcountry or front country, for that matter, wherever you're hunting, um, you don't have to have somebody else along with you. Um, and for better or worse, that's just an option that I want people to know should be open to them. And so I'm hoping that, you know, this is my program as a solo hunter and it's worked for me. I've taken out eight big game animals, uh, five bucks and three bulls, uh, all alone. So it's like, if I can do this, I know that you can do it. And so my hope is that an outline like this of what to expect and the steps that I take um, can give you confidence to, uh, to hunt alone. So I feel like there's also a lot of fodder out there regarding, you know, what to pack, the photo tips, field dressing, stuff like that. So I'm probably going to skim pretty light on those things. Um, but if you do have any questions specifically, uh, yeah, drop it in, drop it in the comment and I'll be super stoked to get back to you and, and, and have um, offered, you know, whatever um, advice I have for whatever question you come up with. So, all right. So, yeah, you've got an animal down. First thing, uh, congratulate yourself. Like, take, I mean, for me, I like to take a knee at first sight. As soon as I see that antler is down or the body is down on the ground and i'm for me that's always following some degree of tracking um but man i just like to you know ground myself in that moment and soak it in because we spend for the most part 11 months out of the year looking forward to hunting season and daydreaming of that exact moment and so to me, that's a real important thing to acknowledge. And like, there is a lot of adrenaline flying. And so there's a lot of things that you can just go by in such a blur. And like everything in life, you know, you can all look back on things and been like, oh man, like at the moment, like I didn't even realize this or I didn't even think to recognize that. It just all went flying by. So, um, you know, maybe by uh, verbalizing it and sharing it with you now is like something to think about. It'll help you remember it because it's taken me a long time to get to where I actually stop and be like, you know, just breathe and think about what you're about ready to walk up on and everything that went into it. So, um, yeah, that's the first thing I like to do. Yeah. When I get to that animal, um, the next thing I really try and do is also take a knee there with the animal and thank that animal. As you guys uh, who have listened to some of my stories are aware, um, yeah, uh, you know, hunting and taking an animal's life is a big deal to me. Um, I'm not one of the people that just thinks, oh, it's, you know, animals were put on this earth for man to do with what he wants. Um, and I mean, some a lot of people believe that. Um, and that's fine. But that's just not me. So I like to take a knee and be like, and thank that animal. <laughs> the next thing that's kind of funny that I always, almost always forget. So I'm putting this down as a reminder to myself, but also an acknowledgement of like, man, you got to remember to pull the, pull your tag out of your wallet and tag the thing. There have been certainly times when I'm um, deep into the process and I'm like, oh yeah, I should actually tag this thing. So um, yeah, I'm putting that down as the reminders that like kind of like the first thing to do, take out your wallet dig out your tag, whatever, not your tag, put that on there and enjoy that moment too. All right. So, uh, some other things we'll cruise through here. Um, right off the bat time frame considerations, like, okay, what time is it? Because you're probably going to need, you're going to be there a couple hours, two hours, maybe three hours, you know, depending on a lot of different things. So put yourself in that 
time frame and what your um, any any limitations you may have, whether it's getting dark, whether it's being somewhere, are you going to be able to complete this on your own? You know, if you're looking at three hours in the field, they're dressing it and getting it all before you're actually packing. So, you know, think about that. And then I'll also right off the bat, it's really important to have your temperature considerations like what what are we looking at? How long has the animal been on the ground? how much sun or shade opportunities are there is temperature and time a problem for um the for the stability of the meat i'm not an expert on what those numbers and ranges are so i'm not gonna say how long is too long but it's not uncommon to be in scenarios where you leave an animal overnight um, before maybe even finding it. You may shoot, you know, tracking, whatever. So, you know, there's a, roughly a 24-hour window there, I think, when it, that's pretty standard amount of time that things can be on the ground. But that's, uh, yeah, that's um, something to consider. Like if you need to really get to work fast or if you've got time, um, you know, get yourself in the in the right mindset for that. You know, photos are the next thing that I definitely jump right into. Uh, and with me, I'm probably taking photos the whole time anyways, even leading up to that. But uh, and that's another thing that has just tons and tons of probably other content out there. I don't know. I don't listen to podcasts. And so um, I don't re- I, I imagine that there are field guides to taking your grip and grin photos. Um, but if there's not, then maybe someone will tell me and maybe I'll think about talking about that in more depth but for right now a couple of things i would just drop your photos are going to be the best if you can get your animal into full sun or full shade the toughest photos are when you're in just this blotchy light which is super common when you're in the woods and um, if it's all possible to move or do a different direction or whatever but full sun or full shade Another thing I would say, leave your backpack and your binoculars and stuff like that on for the pick because that helps tell the story of the fact that you didn't just shoot this thing out the window of the truck. And you're probably not wearing jeans and a t-shirt and running shoes. Um, and so, you know, your your pack and your gear is kind of part of the story. And um, I like to always try and think of that and, you know, that make it look like you're, you know, you walked up on the animal when you take your pictures, um, as you were at, with what you were wearing and as you looked when you walked up on the animal or not, if you don't like that stuff, then don't do it. But those are just things to think about. Um, and then one last thing on video or, or on photos is to use the video mode, uh, especially if you're by yourself and you prop the camera up somewhere like we've all done the timer and sprint back and forth. You're doing, um, you know, sprints to hit the button and then get there in time and act natural. So that's fine for um, for some of the still photos, but most, you know, the camera that you're pulling out of your pocket uh, or the f- smartphone, you know, the picture quality is so good on these things today. I'd say 90% of them out there, you can just roll that thing on video and then all you have to do is play that video back on your device, pause it, and then take a screen grab of the spots that you really like for those pictures. And that's probably going to be a high enough resolution image for for you to do whatever you want with. And then you can have, not to mention, the audio and anything else that is part of that moment. Um, you know, you get 10,000 awesome still images out of, you know, a couple of minutes of video. So consider that tip. So now it's time to get to work. Um, I like to take off my pack, get my bow someplace. Uh, where it's out of the way, if it's a rifle, you know, unloaded and all that, put the broadheads away on, on, on any arrows that are out so you don't step on one or something like that. Kind of create a little base. And then I get, you know, get into your backpack and get out your knives and get out your game bags um, and take a mental note of like where you're going to set that stuff because there's very seldom a field dressing scenario that doesn't involve somebody looking around for five minutes going, where the hell did I set my knife? And they're really easy to lose in all of the mess of a field dressing process. So kind of be like, all right, I'm going to put my knife on this stump or whatever every time and then stick with that. Now, um, I use those razor knives. Um, That's been kind of a 
kind of a tough thing for me because I'm so sentimental about the old Gerber knife that I've had for, I don't know, 30 years and, and used on pretty much every animal I've ever killed. So I still carry this old fixed blade, you know, standard knife, if nothing else, just because it's sturdy and there are a couple of steps that we'll talk about that I do use, you know, having a real strong blade is helpful for. But um, get that razor blade out or that razor knife. And then also I get the extra blades out because I'm probably going to change a blade at least once during that process. Maybe not. But if I need extra blades, it's good to have them out um, before I'm you know, all bloody and dirty and then have to go digging through my entire pack, pack, backpack with dirty hands. So something to think about there for, for speaking of game bags, I used zippered pillowcases. Um, I get the extra large king size pillowcases. Uh, they come in a four pack, which is perfect. And I really love having that. Uh, they're cheap. They breathe. They're washable and um, they've got a zipper on them so you can keep uh, bugs and dirt and keep stuff clean. Now, I know there's tons of fancy uh, uh, game bag options out there that do those things too, but they're probably not as cheap as the pillowcases that I've, and I've used, uh, I've, I'm on my second set now and I've been doing that for like five years. So I've used them for two or three years each before I've replaced them. So they've lasted well. That And that's putting deer and elk in them, so. I don't bother with latex gloves. I know some people do. Uh, I don't really see the purpose in it. Um, so I don't mess with that. But if you do, you know, have that stuff ready. And then another thing to think about, like, all right, you're fixing to get into a whole bunch of work. And um, it's a good time before you all are, are all sweaty and that much more dirty and bloody to like eat and drink um, while you're clean. And get yourself kind of um, topped off because you're going to be going at it for quite a while in this process. And so, yeah, take that time to be like, all right, getting ready to go on this next chapter. And it's a physical deal. So um, get yourself topped off and um, be ready to go. And uh, all right. So moving on, the next thing is, you know, moving the animal to the ideal place. Um, a deer you can drag pretty good to move if you need to get it into a, a clear area. Now, I've never had a critter die in a real bad spot, but it's just a matter of when, not if, that will happen. And so hopefully you're in a spot that's pretty good. Um, with elk, I mean, I can move a bull a little ways by myself, but more than, I don't know, more than a few yards is really probably not not likely something you're going to be able to do. So hopefully you're in a position that you can work with if it's an elk. But um, yeah, you know, take a look around and be like, okay, where am I going to not have to be stepping in the middle of logs or in the middle or rolling my ankle on rocks or having the thing roll down the hill? And if it is on a steep hill, and I have killed critters on steep hills before, um, I'll go ahead and I'll tie it off so that uh, it doesn't keep sliding down the hill because it will keep inching and inching and inching if it's not tied off. And the next thing you know, you're, you know, uh, migrating down the hill into another spot that maybe is not a good place. So um, I don't do the tying legs up or things like that because it doesn't take me that long to take legs apart. So I don't mess around with uh, tying off legs for the sake of taking the animal apart. But I do definitely tie that thing, tie the head off at a minimum if it's uh, looking like it could slide downhill. And then as far as like a orientation of putting it uphill and downhill, I don't know. I've been thinking about this for a while and I can't think of a scenario when I've really cared that much. I think in general, I'll put their feet facing downhill and their back facing uphill and kind of perpendicular to the hill. So they're like, they're walking side hill and then just tipped over. But I don't know, I can't, you know, I, I don't think it would necessarily matter if the thing was facing straight up and straight down hill either. So um, I, you know, well, like I said, there's tons of different methods. If you were doing a process where you're gonna like cut open the guts and pull the, you know, like a traditional, just gutting it like a fish, then, you know, absolutely consider that. But for what I do with, a gutless method, um, that's not really that critical. So the first thing to start doing it, that I do is I get busy skinning. Um, skinning um, is important to do quickly 
in the process to to really release heat. Um, and so right back at the butt, there's usually a pretty big area around it that is just skin and not fur. And so what you can do is you can pinch that skin and take a pretty good pull and then get your knife and get your first cut going right there. And so I'll sit there and I'll pinch that skin and I'll make that first cut and then start going usually straight down uh, the back of the leg. And that line that you cut down the back of the leg, it doesn't have to be pretty. And then from that line from the butt, I'll go up right around the tail and then I'll get my knife right on the backbone. And then I'll run my knife right up the back. And again, I'll, that cut just needs to be a cut. It does not have to be pretty. So don't sit there and waste time trying to make a straight line. And don't be afraid to pull really hard on that skin. And especially in the area when you get up around the ribs, you can really pull and make huge gains uh, without even using the knife. So uh, don't be afraid to really be physical, pulling on that hide and getting that skin off. Uh, you want to be careful to try and keep that hide always peeling back like you're pulling uh, the sheets off a of bed and not letting it keep flopping back down forward because as it flops forward, a whole bunch of hair will come off and inevitably there'll be a whole bunch of dirt that'll come out of that, that hide also and, and it'll just make things messy. So once I get those cuts going, I try and make an, I try and cover enough ground that I can pull that flap of hide back and it's big enough of a flap that it will lay on itself and not keep flopping back down and, and kicking hair and dirt into the clean meat. Something to consider is if it is a big critter that you're going to uh, mount, you're going to want to stop that um, reckless skinning at the shoulders and then do a very nice clean line um, up all the way up to the back of the skull between the, uh, between the ears and the base of the, of the antlers. Nice, clean, straight line there. And then you'd want to also do nice, clean, straight lines all the way down um, from behind their shoulder and leave plenty of extra um, down below their shoulders. But barring that that's not happening, um, yeah, I'll just kind of slash and thrash and, and get all that skin all the way up to the neck. And then I usually go right down, I'll split and I'll kind of take the ears off and then open up that neck also. And I'm just sticking with this one side where, you know, the animal's laying on its side on the ground. So you're kind of just working one side at this point. And um, I'll go real sloppy around the knees also um and i'll cut the hide anywhere i want as needed um to pull it off in big chunks but however i need to to get the legs freed up if i want to do another line up the front of the leg um front or rear leg you know i'll do that as well and then just uh no point skinning down past the um you know the, the that, that first big elbow though where the good where the good meat ends so yeah i'll just spin around that real quick and um and get that hide off Let's see here. Let's look at that back, getting that first hind quarter off. I'll push that knife blade. I'll do a lot of pushing and feeling with my fingers to really feel where those bones are at and kind of back there in the pelvis slash hip bone slash last vertebrae. You can feel a lot by pushing around in there with your fingers and I'll take the knife straight down the back, the, the vertebrae in the back and I'll go forward in a cut that goes just to where the kind of where the the front of the hip would be um, like if you had your hand in your front pocket like that portion of the anatomy and you can really if you feel the leg and you run your hand up the thigh again you can really push with your fingers and feel where those muscle groups kind of come together and you can keep all of that intact and then so from running your hand up the inside of the thigh to the kind of the crotch of the hip there, you can go straight up with your knife and basically uh, tie into that cut that was on the backbone. And that'll kind of be the, um, the junction between that hind quarter and the back strap. And um, you can kind of delicately uh, pull through that upper part of the hind quarter and really just kind of scallop that meat off of the backbone and off of parts of the pelvis there um, and get down deep uh, all the way down to that ball and then I'll bend down and I'll pick that leg up and I'll stick it over my shoulder 
and or over my head and then I'll kind of just start to put pressure on that from the inside and then I'll carefully cut uh, with my knife on the inside of the thigh down in that groin area and I'll be really careful not to go too deep um, when I'm right up against the the gut there you'll quite possibly pop a part of that stomach cavity but you've got basically one warning shot. When you pop that stomach cavity, you're still okay, you'll get a blast of air. But if you pop further than that, then you'll actually pop part of the actual guts, intestines, and and then that's when you really have a problem. And I've never had that happen, but I'm sure that would not be ideal to have stomach contents uh, coming out in, even into the cavity. So yeah, be real careful with that. Pressure will really help you um, tell and feel with your knife where you need to do those cuts and also be very careful not to get that uh you know the cock there because that um obviously has the urine track in it and you'll see it especially you'll see it once you do get one side done when you do the second side so uh yeah just be real careful with your knife push get pressure on it and as you get more pressure your knife will really lead you where it needs to go because the cuts will kind of happen automatically and that big femur hip ball um, will start to become visible use your hands to feel and um, you, you can kind of tell where where you're going and let that knife lead through and then what i do is i get everything cut through popped off top and bottom i'll go kind of back and forth i'll check all the way around make sure that thing can swivel then there's a great big heavy-duty tendon um, that's kind of holding everything together from the inside and that hip ball joint. And um, so once I get to that point, then I'll make sure that I have everything ready. Uh, I'll have a game bag laid out, and I'll lay that game bag out in a place that's in the shade. If I don't have shade, then I'll open that game, back up, game bag up so that when I have that uh, hindquarter off, I've got a clean place to put it because that could that should still all be really clean for you and if you're ready and don't cut it off and go walking around looking for a place to put it <laughs> I've done that before until you have your place ready so get that bag ready I'll just lift that leg up and you know I'll have the exposed opening there between the Achilles tendon and that um, and that big and the leg so you got a real good handle there and depending on the size of the bowl this can be a real heavy lift for one dude or depending on the size of you, it could be a heavy lift, but uh, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And I'll just get everything cut free and make sure I can pick it up. And then I'll set my knife down, get my footing and just do a straight lift and then carry that huge leg and then get it laid down. The next thing I'll do, you know, you can cut the knees off if you want. If you're packing out a full quarter uh, with bone in, um, then you're going to want to cut that off. But I usually bone out my meat, and so there's no point in cutting at the knee um, because you're going to bone it out anyways. But if you are going to take the full quarters with the bone in, the the femur in, you definitely can cut it at the knee. And you don't need a knife. You don't need a dick with a saw. You can absolutely do it with a knife. Um, it's a matter of it's hard to teach, especially um, in this format, but uh, a, a knife will do it very easily. Um, so I, I can't really get into more of that without being able to show you, but uh, use, use your knife and you can take that knee off. The next thing I'll do is I'll get up to that front quarter and same thing, I'll make sure I have a place ready and uh, cutting that front quarter off is really, really easy. If you haven't done it before, that shoulder blade you know the whole front shoulder is connected by basically a lot of surface area and no real hard major point you know the rear's got that absolute point in the hip but in the front it's just a whole bunch of uh broad area of that all inside that shoulder so you know i'll cut that sucker off again i'll lop off the hide you know down below the where the meat ends um and i won't worry about taking the knee off um at this point because at this point I just want to get these big chunks of meat off the animal so that everything is opened up and cooling off as fast as possible. So I'll get that front quarter off and I'll set it on a bag. The next thing I'll do is that back strap. And that's everything that's between where your cut at the hind quarter stopped and all the way up the neck. And I like to run quite a ways up the neck with what I leave all on that long back strap. So I mean, this thing's going to be as long as your leg. 
and um, I'll take that knife with that straight down the vertebrae and I'll do the same thing all the way up the back, clear to the neck. And then you can really pull and feel the muscle groups and you can really tell where you can make those cuts to keep all of that together into one super long uh, cut. And uh, this stuff's really visible when you're doing it. Then the last thing for that side, um, you know, there's going to be miscellaneous meat from the, uh, from the neck that you're going to want to cut out and I'll put that meat into a, uh, well, I'll, I'll okay, so I'll take that back strap and I'll have a third bag now and that third bag is going to be the miscellaneous meat bag and so that's where I'll put the back straps, the neck meat and uh, the tenderloin. And the tenderloin is the last part that we'll that we do before we uh, roll the animal over. And for that, you can do a lot of this with your bare hands by feeling the top of that gut and pulling that gut bag, basically, uh, kind of pushing down and sliding your hand between those last few vertebrae. Um, there's a couple of vertebrae that just have those fins on them before the actual rib stop and you can slide your hand down in there and you can really push that gut cavity down and you can reach in there and you can really feel that strand of um, muscle that's right up against the inside of the backbone and that's the tenderloin. A lot of that you can work with your hand and get it freed up um, and then you're gonna need to make a cut at the very front end at the very forward end of it where it attaches and at the aft end where it attaches um, and so again this is really tough to explain without doing it in person but that's how I do it um, I only use a couple of cuts with a knife um, and it's really tight quarters to try and get your hand in there, much less your hand and a knife, knife without popping that gut cavity. So um, it is tricky, but that is how I do it. So at that point, I've got these, the front quarter, the rear quarter and this miscellaneous meat in a bag. And I'll go ahead and uh, ready to flip that animal over now and repeat all of those steps. One thing to think about also when you're doing that is in Idaho, um, you have to have proof of sex in addition to the head. And so for that, that can include or does include leaving um, a portion of the scrotum uh, attached to the meat of the thigh. And so what I do on my, if I didn't happen, I usually don't do it on the first one, I'll do it on the, on the second one. And so that's kind of a tricky process, but basically you can grab the nut sack and you can make a few cut, careful cuts around it. And, and you know, and actually I should have mentioned this while skinning because you don't want to go um, when you're skinning and throw all of that out. But when you're skinning out um, that first leg, I actually don't skin around the cocking balls at all. Um, I only skin around the leg that I know I'm going to have to take. I don't even remove all of the skin off of the belly because there's no point in it. There's no point in skinning all the way around the belly because we're not taking anything from the, you know, from that very bottom part of the animal. Um, so same is true with that cocking balls area. I never have to touch it on that first leg. And then on the second leg, that's when I need to take those, take the nuts and basically turn the whole bag inside out. And you don't need a knife to do that. You can push, you can push the actual balls out of the sack and just peel the, uh, basically just peel the skin off and it does pull off of there and you can take a portion of it. That's like, all right, I'll, I'll usually take like, what's a comparison here. Um, I don't know. The size of your fist is basically about how big that about how big that is, and I'll cut about that much of it off, and then I'll carefully cut around, and I'll just push the balls off the ball the balls out, and so you'll just be able to pull it apart, and it'll tear apart, and you'll basically have the balls in one hand, and then just the 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 hairy scrotum in your other hand, and then with that, you just make sure that you have a portion of that attached to the uh that other leg and and the rest of the body and you make your cuts carefully you got to be really careful but that's how you got to do it to be legal at least in idaho and i will leave that piece um attached to the meat uh permanently until i get home so 
something to be aware of. And then I, but I never have to, never have to actually cut anything. You know, you're never cutting the the lines to the balls. You're never cutting any of the urinary tract. You're never cutting any of the cock. Um, you never touch any of that because you're just taking that leg and that leg in with that portion of the skin that you need um, to go with it. And so you really don't even have to get into any of that other stuff. So yeah, we've flipped, we've repeated all of those process. Uh, where am I at here? The proof of sex. Now what? Now and once I've got all those quarters off, now I'll take them and I'll go back to that first quarter and I'll debone it. And to cut out the bone, the bones out of a quarter, I basically, yeah, I don't try and cut the meat off of the leg. I basically try and cut the bone out of the leg, if that makes sense. Uh, I'll take that hip ball and run my knife literally just right down that bone and follow that bone with my knife and then just basically follow it to the knee. Things get a little funky in the knee. And then below the knee, you've got that big calf. There's a bunch of good meat in there. Um, but I basically just like to hold on to that, to that leg uh, ball, hip ball and cut until I can pull that and all of the bone away and chuck it. And then I've I haven't messed with removing the uh, knee joint and I haven't messed with cutting the leg groups into a zillion different little pieces. I've still got one giant chunk of meat with the bone pulled out of it. And so that's how I do that. The front shoulder is a little bit more work. You do kind of have to take you know, a little bit of filleting uh, with your knife to get off some of the best meat off of the shoulder blade. And um, it's a, it's not quite as clean of a simple a, as a process, but that's what I do um, to debone those four legs. Okay, so I'll put the meat from each hindquarter in its own bag. And there's two of your bags there. Uh, those are definitely the uh, heaviest chunks of meat by far. Then you've got your front quarters. I'll usually combine the meat from the front quarters and uh, that fills up a third bag. And then the fourth bag, you're gonna have your back straps, your tenderloins, and the uh, extra miscellaneous meat that came off of the neck. Now, I can't think of the names of the other cuts, um, but but all, all of your other meat. And so that's what I end up with are, are, are those four, ba four bags um, that are full of just meat. And then the last thing to do um, is the head. And if you're gonna take just the um, just the antlers and you have a saw, then that's great. Then that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, I usually would cut the uh, hair with a knife or the the um, the ears off and shape it the way I want with a knife and expose the bone to do the uh, the saw cutting so that you're just running the saw through the bone. Um, but more often I'm taking the entire head and the entire head is another thing like the knees that is absolutely doable with just a knife. I don't ever use a saw. I don't even carry a saw actually. Um, I just use a knife to get that very first joint, um, behind the skull, that Atlas joint. And it's tricky. Uh, I can't really explain it, uh, without visuals but it's very possible and that is where i do like to have a sturdy knife and so um i will use my bigger fixed blade old school knife for that um and then i'll trim that head down i'll i'll, I'll trim all of the weight off of it whether you know get all the hide off get the nose off get the lower jaw get the eyes um the tongue all that stuff if i if i have time to do all that and i'm a far enough distance where packing it is going to matter then yeah I'll, I'll i'll take that time to do it and that can be a huge time suck if you don't know what you're doing um so boy and especially getting a jaw off the first few times a person tries to cut the jaw off of a skull it's it's a it's definitely involves a lot of technique but it saves a whole bunch of weight so when now, when I'm getting ready to leave, um, take my first trip. So I've got I've got the animal all taken apart. Uh, I've got four bags of meat and a head. I'll take all of that meat and I'll move it away from the carcass because you're gonna have critters that are going to want to get on that carcass as soon as possible. And I honestly think that they want the guts and the liver and that kind of stuff more than they want the meat that you cut off and put in your bags. So. I, you know, great. It's, that's theirs. That's going to feed a whole bunch of animals in that area over the coming uh, months. And so 
I'll move all of my meat, you know, a few yards away at least. And then I'll leave any extra clothes. I'll cover it up. If I got my extra jackets, um, anything that's uh, easy to leave there to just kind of deter a bear or a coyote or a fox or a wolf or a badger or marten or weasel, you know, ravens, magpies. I don't think birds... Yeah, so I, all of those things are going to want to get on that meat and or on that carcass. But um, I'll cover my meat up with jackets, and then I'll piss. I'll, I'll try and take a couple of pisses around that area where I've got the meat and um, and leave that carcass for the critters to have. So that, that way everybody's happy. And honestly, that's, uh, that's worked. I've left a lot of animals overnight. And there is one time when I had critters get on and eat some of the meat, but they were eating the meat that was actually on the carcass and not meat that I had bagged and set aside. So for what it's worth, um, that's something to, that, that has worked for me. Um, let's see, where are we at? And then, yeah, I mean, as far as leaving an animal overnight, I mean, I do it often. Um, usually I'm at high elevation where I know the temperature is going to be down into at least the fifties, more likely the thirties or forties. So in those conditions, I'm super comfortable with that meat staying overnight. And, um, and once it gets really cooled down, um, now, you know, I know that meat's going to be cool and, and having it sit out there in the air overnight is good. And, and I'll always try and take these bags of meat, um, and I'll put them on logs. You know, I don't mess with hanging it up. On, I just don't. Again, some guys will go through the effort of hanging those bags of meat, but I don't think a critter is going to mess with uh, meat that's in a bag hanging or even leaning sitting on the ground when they've got a whole carcass right there instead. So um, for me, that's never been something I've worried about. But I do try and lean it up against the tree, give at least some of it as much air exposure as possible, as opposed to just laying it flopped on the ground, if possible. And I'll even pick it up and just set it in a bush, um, because even crunching down on a piece of sagebrush, um, there's still a whole bunch of air circulation as it crushes that sagebrush, as opposed to just laying flat on the ground. Then, so now you got to kind of take a look at like, okay, how much can I pack? Um, you know, my pack usually weighs 30 to 40 pounds. Um, when I'm just hunting, um, because I have a heavy pack and I carry probably too much stuff. Um, but that's, that's what it is. So I'll probably add a hindquarter and a miscellaneous bag, uh, for my, for my load out. And, you know, that's going to be, that's, you know, that's getting you up over 100 pounds. Um, it's going to depend, of course, on how far you are from the rig, what kind of terrain. But I'll try and do an elk in three trips uh, when I'm by myself. I've done an elk in two trips, and that, of course, was crazy brutal. And I've done an elk with two people um, over two trips, so basically four trips. So you know, it, it, that's all up in the air, depending on everything involved with, um, with your specific situation. But um, you're going to be probably need to be prepared to carry something around 100 pounds, um, I would say is something you should be um, adequately equipped to do. And um, if I'm a long ways away, um, I killed a bull a few years ago that I was seven miles from the truck and with something that far um i did it in shuttle trips meaning that i took my first load out and i went halfway back to the truck and then i dropped it and then i went back to the kill site and picked up another load and took it halfway and dropped it and then i did that three times so then at least at that point it made me feel like okay well now i've got all of the elk halfway back to the truck and so then from the trips to the truck uh, it didn't seem as daunting so the next trip out to the truck i also carry uh, an extra pack frame and i always have that in my truck so that when i go back with my first load and unload it and unload every all the other unnecessary things out of my backpack um, I have a lighter backpack going in. I just take food and water and, you know, just the bare, bare essentials. And then I carry that extra pack frame with me, 
um, or throw or tie it on or whatever. So now I have two backpacks. And so now when I get back to the bowl, um, I'll load two uh, loads together um, so that I basically don't have to untie them as much um, and, and transfer it. So I can take that pack out, walk back up and grab the other one, have it ready to go. Um, let's see, where am I at here? Whenever I get that meat back, um, and the whole process of handling my meat, um, I just tr always try and keep it dry, um, clean and dry as possible. I know some people will put it in a creek, uh, wash it off. I suppose if you absolutely have to, if it got really dirty, or if you had for some reason stomach contents or urine or something get on it, you definitely would want to wash it. But I don't know, like I, I've always just tried to keep it clean and dry um, and as much air exposure as possible. Um, and for that, when it's cool overnight, I'll try and have it opened up if I am back to a camp or staying longer and that meat is going to be in the field with me and not going straight home. Um, I'll get everything as open as possible overnight so that it gets a real good cool down. And then during the day, um, I'll cover it back up to insulate that cold and keep it cold. Uh, when I do get it to my truck, I don't mess with coolers. Uh, for one, I don't have like five extra coolers, which is how much it would take to put, <laughs> to put an el a whole elk into. Um, and I also don't like the idea of putting meat into a sealed, uh, confined space like that. Um, to me, that doesn't make sense. To me, I want that meat to have air exposure. So I just put it in the back of my truck and for the drive home for that you know five hours of driving even if it does end up being hot when i get back down to town um that meat has been at least getting uh air blowing over it and um that's that's always been fine for me so that's just my my program for what i've done um all right now that i'm home um i'll take those bags of meat and fortunately we have an extra refrigerator in the garage and I'll just put those bags of meat in the refrigerator and I'll take all the shelves out and everything out so that I can fit a whole, you know, four big bags of meat in there. And, um, everything is to this point, I've had, you know, I've been able to bring whole meat that's clean enough, dry enough, um, to where, yeah, I don't have to worry about anything right off the bat. If you did have any compromising issues in the field, you would want to address that right away. Um, all the one thing I will do is now that I'm home is I'll go ahead and I'll cut that scrotum off just because that scrotum area is especially pungent and, um, you know, bulls, you know, how bull elk are and all the scents that they like. Um, so it's, it's kind of soaked and, uh, and so it is pungent. So I'll cut that off of there so that it isn't flavoring the meat for that whole period that I keep it in the fridge because I do keep that meat in the fridge for 10, 10 days on average, uh, up to two weeks um, to let that age meet. And I'll rotate it around, I'll move it, get it as much air exposure to each bag, to each piece as possible. And um, that's, um, that's worked for me well so far. Uh, when my aging period is done and I decide that I'm ready, that this meat's ready to start getting uh, into the freezer, um, I'll fill up the sink with cold water and I'll bring in uh, one bag at a time or I'll reach into a bag and I'll grab one huge big chunk and I'll bring it into the sink and I'll uh, definitely give it a super good rinse and wash in the sink. And then, um, and then I'll take um, my chunks and I'll start cutting them into steaks. Um, I'll take different muscle groups um, and I'll, Again, there's so much to explain here that, that you really can't explain. Um, but um, I cut it apart into chunks that are going to be, you know, three, four big steaks. Um, I cut across the grain. Uh, definitely trim off anything that's basically a good rule is anything that's white <laughs> as far as whether it's fat, whether it's uh, connective tissue, whether it's tendon or whatever. Um, I'll trim off, you know, anything that's white. And uh, I'll get a, I'll have a big container on the kitchen counter, and as I go through each chunk of meat out of the out of the bag, into the sink, out of the sink, onto the cutting board, and then from the cutting board 
into a big container and I'll have the, or, or, you know, like a big turkey pot or we have some big, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you call them, big deep pans. And then I can move them into the fridge so that that way um, the meat isn't sitting on the counter for hours uh, getting warm while I'm doing that process. And then we use a vacuum bagger and um, yeah, then I'll take, you know, so I may do an entire afternoon or evening of just one bag from sink to cutting board to a fridge container. And then it may be another session, get that fridge container out and get your vacuum bag all set up and then go through and put the actual steaks in the vacuum bags. And I label all of my steaks. I label them BK for backstrap, HQ for hindquarter, FQ for front quarter, NK for neck, TL for tenderloin. Um, and then I'll do a couple of big roasts. And then I'll also have a separate container that all of my trimmings go to, not throwaway trimmings, but just stuff that didn't fit for a good steak and or sometimes even some of the good steak meat. And that will be my uh, my uh, portion that I'll make in, and save for burger because I make my own hamburger also. And uh, and then I may do a big batch or a big bag that I'll label for jerky. And uh, for my jerky, um, I use steaks like it's definitely not scrap meat. Um, I take either a flat out steak or pieces of meat that are too small to be a steak, but are steak quality. And um, so that's what I'll combine for um, for the different types of meat. And then I'll bag them up like that and get them into the freezer. All right, we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, I'll just jump in with a couple more things for what how we like to do our um, our, our meals for our steaks. Um, I like to pull them out the day before, and I'll put them on a plate. I'll let them thaw on the counter or in the sink, and then I'll cut them out. I'll give them a good rinse, let a bunch of flat, fr fresh water run through the bag, and pull them out and wash them off. I'll check for any extra little things I may have missed. Sometimes there's a, a piece of hair or something like that that does slip by. Um, and then I'll cut them into the size of steaks that we like to eat and I'll kind of cover them in some olive oil, some garlic and some pepper. Um, we, uh, we like a few seasonings. You know, I like Montreal seasoning, dry seasoning. I like Old Bay uh, seasoning actually on, on steaks uh, for, a, for a little dry marinade mixed with the olive oil. Allie makes a really good chimichurri lately that has been just my absolute favorite. And for that, we'll do parsley, cilantro, uh, some garlic, uh, olive oil, and salt and pepper. And we'll run that in a food processor and have this really good. Oh, and jalapeno. Yeah, jalapeno's the key. And uh, have a really green, spicy sauce that is an awesome topping on steaks. Uh, don't do it before it's cooked because that stuff burns and is not good when it's burnt. But use that as a sauce on your steak if you want to try that. Um, for my jerky, yeah, like I said, I'll use steaks. Uh, I won't use backstrap, but I'll use good hindquarter, frontquarter steaks, whatever, um, for the jerky. Like neck's not really good for jerky because neck has a lot of white, basically a lot of connective tissue. All of those muscle groups are are very tender. It's, it's great meat, but it's not really great for jerky. I like, you know, jerky by nature is going to be stiff and hard enough to eat as it is. So by using rough meat on top of that just seems counterproductive to me. So... Um, I'll just throw some kosher salt. I'll use Coke instead of sugar. Um, and, uh, dab a little bit of a one and, uh, some minced garlic. Um, and I'll a little bit of as much water as needed to kind of just get the meat all covered. I'll cut that meat into, you know, quarter inch, uh, thickness. I'll throw it in that brine. Um, and I'll just th have it in the fridge for about two, three hours, stir it around a couple of times. And then I've got a big chief smoker and I'll just set that sucker up. I'll get it preheated and um, fill the racks with that meat and I'll smoke it for, you know, six to eight hours, kind of depending on the temperature. Um, I put it in my shop during the wintertime. It's cold out. I put the box over the smoker too. So it adds a little extra, uh, keeps, I think, a little bit more heat in there. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I like it. I give it to other people and, and it's, uh, been described as, uh, really good jerky. So that's a win for me. 
and then I'll freeze it. Um, if I can't eat everything I just made in that batch. Um, yeah, for burger, I'll usually try and do burger um, before uh, anything is frozen. So that kind of has to happen at the tail end of the, uh, of the packaging process. Um, I'll call up the Albertsons and let them know that I need some beef trimmings. And if I call them in the morning, usually by the end of the day, they'll have, uh, you know, about five pounds. I usually have about 50 pounds of meat that I'll do into burger. And um, so I'll get five pounds of beef fat uh, trimmings. And that's usually, it's been consistently very nice, clean, fresh, good smelling beef fat. Um, and then we've also got just like some of the, uh, some of their uh, bacon too, if to do some squealer burger, uh, that's kind of, you know, like two, if you want to pick out a little bit of your uh, meat and do uh, squealer burgers, then I'll just get like two or three pounds of their super premium, not packaged, but like from the counter bacon and um, run that through the grinder uh, with uh, with the elk um, or deer or whatever to make some really fantastic burger. But yeah, we don't own our own grinder. So every year we're, <laughs> we're bugging our friends to borrow the grinder. Same with the vacuum bagger. Uh, our friend, the Matt friends, Ian and Haley Malapi, we've been borrowing their vacuum bagger for five years in a row now. And I've always said, I'm not going to buy one because the one year I buy one, I'm going to get skunked. So that's kind of my deal, borrowing all that stuff. Um, okay, guys, that's kind of covered a whole bunch of the stuff. And if, uh, if you made it, if you listened to this long, then it must've been interesting and helpful to you. And everyone else is probably hung up a long time ago and they're long gone, but geez, we're at 50, almost getting close to an hour. So, um, yeah, hope that was helpful. Drop a comment. Um, Hey, also, um, I'm building out a website and I think it's pretty cool. Um, I'm not really ready to start promoting it publicly yet. By the time this goes live and is on the air, who knows that may be old news. But for me at this point right now, I'm really excited about the website that I'm building out. So um, keep your eyes peeled for that. And um, yeah, thanks for listening. We'll uh, talk to you next time. Bye.